Well, I'm turning uh, back this morning to that passage that we read from earlier in 1 Kings and chapter 19. And I want us to focus especially on verses 19 uh, through to the end of the chapter, 1 Kings and chapter 19. Now, as you're turning there, we're jumping into a moment in Israel's history which was spiritually shrouded in great darkness. Ahab was king over Israel at this point, and Ahab was an unrighteous king. In 1 Kings chapter 16 and uh, verse 30, we're told there that Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. In that same uh, chapter, it goes on to say there in verse 33 that he did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. To him, it was a light thing to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. Furthermore, in chapter 21 and and verse 25, it states that there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord. Ahab was an unrighteous king, but not only was Ahab an unrighteous king, but he was also an idolatrous king. In chapter 21, we're told that he did very abominably in following idols. Back in, in chapter 16, it tells us that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. And it tells us that he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria, and Ahab made a grove. Instead of serving and, and worshipping Jehovah, he bowed down to the gods of his wicked wife, Jezebel. Let me just say as, a, as an aside here this morning for anyone here who aspires to be married that you should make it a matter of serious prayer. Jezebel brought Ahab down to her level of following uh, and the gods that she served. Uh, marriage is not to be entered lightly. Ahab married this, this wicked woman and she stirred him up to idolatry and to grievous sin. And so we see that Ahab was an unrighteous king and he was an idolatrous king. But if that was not enough, he was also a covetous king. In the next, well, in chapter 21, we have that record of how Ahab, he looked out from his palace and he sees the vineyard of Naboth and he desired it and he coveted it. It belonged to Naboth. It was the inheritance of his fathers. But Despite all the fields and all the vineyards that belonged to Ahab, Ahab coveted this one of Naboth. And if you know the story, the desire of Ahab led to dissatisfaction, and dissatisfaction led to deception, and deception led to destruction. Naboth was stoned to death, and he was killed. And having stoned Naboth, Ahab seized his vineyard, and he took it even though it was unlawfully his to do so. So we see here that he was an unrighteous king, he was an idolatrous king, and he was a covetous king. And sadly, where the king went, the people followed. Elijah laments this in our chapter. You notice he says it in verse 14 there. He says it twice. He says that he's been jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, 
and slain thy prophets with the swords. And because of the wickedness of the king and because of the wickedness of the people, God had judged the nation. In the previous chapters, you read of how Elijah appears on the scene and he pronounces this judgment that for three and a half years there was neither dew nor rain upon the lands. And yet, we read here in this chapter, despite the great spiritual darkness of these days, the Lord still had his remnants. He still had those who remained faithful to his words. God had raised up Elijah to serve him. There was also Obadiah that we read about who feared the Lord greatly. There were the hundred prophets that Obadiah had hid in, in two caves. And here in this, this very chapter we, that we read from earlier, Elijah was told in his fatigue and in his fear and in his despondency that, that the Lord had raised up 7,000 who had yet, not yet bowed the knee to Baal. And friends, we have here a reminder, don't we, that even in the darkest days, God still has his people, despite all the afflictions that face God's people in the church. The church is not consumed. And we can at times, can't we, possess a similar feeling to that of Elijah. We see the, the prevalence of sin. We see uh, wickedness. We see the widespread indifference to religion and to the things of God. And we see the smallness of the church, the seeming smallness of the church. And we can become despondent. But the Lord has his people and of course, the Lord Jesus Christ has promised, hasn't he, that he will build his church and that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But not only are we reminded in this chapter that God has his people, but we're also reminded that God has his prophets. He was still raising men up who said, thus saith the Lord, men like Elijah in this chapter. And again, it's good for us to remind ourselves, isn't it, that the Lord is still the Lord of the harvest and he still is sending forth laborers into the harvest fields. And we need to continue to pray that he would do so even in these days, even in these days of spiritual darkness and perhaps despondency. And at the end of this chapter, we see the Lord raising up another man. In verse 16, Elijah He's told to go and anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, to be a prophet, one who would take his place. He was going to be an encouragement to Elijah, but he was also going to be used by the Lord to bring judgment. You see that there at the end of verse 17, the one that escapes the sword of Haziel, Jehu would slay. And him who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. And what I would like us to do over the next few weeks is to begin a series looking at the ministry and the miracles of this prophet Elisha. And I trust that as we uh, do so, we will glean much that will be spiritual food for our souls as we look at this man's life and, and ministry. But this morning, I want us to focus on these verses that are in front of us here, which detail for us his calling, his calling to this service as a prophet of the Lord. And I want to just focus this morning on two things that we can draw out of these verses, particularly from verses 19, 20, and 21. The first thing that I think that we noticed this morning is Elisha's exemplary character. Elisha's exemplary character. There in verse 19, we are introduced to this man, Elisha. His name means God 
is salvation. And it uh, suggests to us, doesn't it, that he came from a God-fearing home. Parents who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. And uh, we have here a handful of details about Elisha's home life and about his character. And I think that we could note a couple of things especially. I think firstly we could notice that Elisha is hard-working. He's a hard-working person. In verse 19, we see this man, Elisha, and we're told immediately that he was plowing. He's plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. He's working in this field, probably taking advantage of the fact that the rain had now come. And he's plowing with a, a team of oxen. And in those days, plowing in this way with a, with a team of oxen, it was uh, hard work, physically draining work, especially under the hot Middle Eastern sun. Today, of course, plowing is relatively easy physically, isn't it, with all the tractors that we have. But back then it was tough, hard work. And yet we find it is here where the Lord calls him. It was not in a, in a study, but in a field. He was not in a, in a palace, but rather he was following the plough. It was while he was hard at work that the Lord sets him, sets him apart for the service of the Lord. Elisha, we see here, was a labourer. And it's interesting to note, isn't it, when you go through the scriptures, that the Lord often calls those who are already labouring. You think of Moses tending his father-in-law's flock. Gideon was threshing wheat. Amos was called from the herds. David was a shepherd boy. Peter and Andrew, they were mending their nets. And it's because the Lord wants laborers, doesn't he? Not loafers. The Lord calls those who are already laboring hard in their secular work. And friends, we could also note here that God puts a great honor and a great dignity on ordinary and secular occupations of life. There's a, there's a great dignity in common labor. And we're to be hardworking in whatever the Lord, whatever sphere the Lord has placed us in. Scripture reminds us, doesn't it, that idleness and slothfulness are sins. Paul warns us not to be slothful in business. There's many proverbs, aren't there? Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, by much slothfulness, the building decayeth. And through idleness of the hands, the house droppeth through. And yet we see here, Elisha was a man who was hard Working, But not only was Elisha hard-working, we could also notice that he was humble. He was humble. You notice what he's doing here. In verse 19, he's plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. Oxen were, were very costly beasts in these days. Today they would be the equivalent to the most expensive tractor that you could buy. To have 12 of them. Especially after three and a half years of drought, it suggests to us, doesn't it, that Elisha's family was incredibly wealthy and rich. And yet despite his wealth and his privileges, we find Elisha unashamedly engaged in this very lowly task of plowing a field. He didn't think that this job was below his station. He didn't uh, only engage, as it were, in, in work that's of a higher sphere. He didn't say, this is something that's beneath me, I'm not going to do it. He didn't think this was only reserved for the hired labourer. No, Elisha humbly gets on with the task that's in hand. And what an example this is to us. There are some people in the Lord's work who think that they're too good, as it were, for the plough. 
They think that they have great gifts and, you know, everyone should benefit from their great gifts. And they push, as it were, for the higher spheres in the church. Stacking chairs after the children's club, that's beneath them. Making tea and coffee, well, that's sort of peasant's work, isn't it? And there can be a vanity in it and an overestimation of our gifts. But we're to be humble. James 4, verse 6, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. And I think we can notice here too as we see the humility of Elisha that the Lord calls a variety of people, doesn't he, to be his labourers. He doesn't call only the rich or only the poor, but he calls all kinds of people, rich people as well, just like Elisha. He called the privileged Moses, didn't he, to his work. He called Isaiah, who we find out was related to the king. But they were all called, called into the Lord's work. And God loves to use a variety of instruments, doesn't he, to carry out his great purposes and his work in these days. And so that should never be a barrier to us. Whatever, we may, whatever sphere of life we may come from, it can never be a barrier to the Lord using us and employing us as, as tools in his hands. And so we see here the exemplary character of Elisha. He was hardworking and he was humble. But I want us to notice, secondly, this morning, not only Elisha's exemplary character, but Elisha's exemplary conduct as he hears this call. Notice the details here in verse 19. Elijah passes by Elisha, and it says that he cast his mantle upon him. The mantle was the clothing of the prophetic office. It represented the spirit of power. And by taking off the mantle and placing it on Elisha, he was anointing him. He was symbolically showing that the power would be transferred to him. But the question that we can ask as we see Elijah passing by and throwing his mantle upon Elisha is, what will Elisha's response be to receiving the prophet's mantle on his back? How is he going to, how is he going to respond I think that we can say that there's three things here about the response of Elisha, three key things that we can notice about what Elisha does here. And the first thing that we can say is that Elisha's response was selfless. It was selfless. When Elijah placed that mantle on the back of Elisha, Elisha realized that this was not a call to some life of great luxury, but it was a call to a life of poverty and and hardship. We just noted, didn't we, that Elisha was rich, he had a comfortable home, he had been blessed with abundance, he had servants, it's clear from this passage. He also had a loving family back at the the home farm. And this call of Elijah was not an inviting prospect. Elijah, you remember, had been fed by ravens. He had boarded with a, a poor widow. He was now currently being pursued to his death by the queen, Queen Jezebel. And it was, a, it was a call to a life of exile, a life of hardship. Following Elijah would mean swapping comfort for danger. It would mean swapping affluence for poverty. To side with Elijah meant siding with a man who was hated and hunted. But it didn't stop Elisha. No, we find him here renouncing all. And he considers it a far greater gain, doesn't he, to follow this poor prophet's. If you turn over for a few, just a second, into 2 Kings and chapter 3, 
and verse 11. Elisha becomes known as somebody who poured water on the hands of Elijah. If you look at verse 11 there, it says, Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here a prophet of the Lord, that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, Here is Elisha, the son of Shaphat, which poured water on the hands of Elijah. He was being called to a, a, a lowly service. He was being called away from all the luxuries that he, he enjoyed. And he was now going to be known as someone who poured water on the hands of Elijah. Such a menial task. But Elijah, you see, is selfless. He renounces all. And, and you know, friends, this morning, likewise, as servants of Christ, we should prefer nothing else in this world. Nothing before Christ. We should place nothing above him or before Christ. We should seek to serve him selflessly. No other object should rival our heavenly master in our hearts. Now the Lord's work is often hard. Yes, it often brings poverty. Yes, it often brings strife. Yes, but we should follow him selflessly. Christ tells us, doesn't he, that he came not to bring peace but a sword. He says, marvel not if the world hates you. But that's what we're called to do. We're called to follow him. We said with the boys and girls, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Wherever that may take us, whether it may take us from richness to poverty, whether it takes us to hardship or strife, we're to follow him. Friends, it's, it's true today as it was in Elisha's day, the Lord's work is hard. But we should be selfless. We should be like Elisha. We should be like Moses. You remember what it tells us about Moses in Hebrews chapter 11. Remember those wonderful words that we read there of, of Moses and his commitment to following Christ and following the work of the Lord. In, in Hebrews chapter 11, it says that he, by faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 25, he says, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the rewards. A selfless attitude, Elisha was selfless. But we could also notice here about Elisha's conduct and his response that it was immediate. Not only was it selfless, but it was instantaneous. It was immediate. Notice what he says in verse 20. The mantle's been cast upon him. He has perhaps been shocked by the suddenness of this call. But we read in verse 20 that he left the oxen and ran after Elisha. His response was quick, it was, it was immediate. He places the reins of the oxen on their back, he leaves them standing in the field with the plough still in its furrow, and then he runs. And running here indicates great haste, it indicates swiftness. He didn't stop and ponder whether this was the right thing to do. He didn't go away and think about it and ask others you know, what they thought he should do. There wasn't the slightest reservation there wasn't resistance. There was no uh, misgiving. He just went. 
He didn't say to himself, well, I'm going to wait for a more convenient season or even, you know, Elijah, let me finish at least plowing this field. No, he ran. And this immediate response to the call by Elisha, it's, we see this mirrored, don't we, all the way through the Bible. You think of particularly when the Lord called the disciples. Just turn with me, for example, to Mark chapter 1. We see such a, a, a similar response as the Lord calls uh, the various disciples to follow him and pursue after him. Mark chapter 1 and verse uh, 16. Now as he, Jesus, walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway, immediately, they forsook their nets and followed him. Verse 19, and when he had gone a little further thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the ship, mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. Left it all behind, and there's this immediacy, there's this instantaneous response to following Christ. And you go on into Mark chapter 2, and you find the same, don't you, with Levi. You remember how the Lord comes to the seat of custom? There's Levi in verse 14. He's sitting at the receipt of custom. And Jesus says, follow me. And what does it say? And he arose and followed him. There's this immediacy. And friends, when the Lord calls, we should come. When he commands, we should obey. We, obey. we, should, we should say, just as, as they did, we're going to follow. And this is true in the first place in conversion. Christ calls us to follow him and we should do so unhesitatingly. We should do so immediately. We should respond to that call. And let me say to anyone here this morning who perhaps is not a Christian, the Lord says, follow me. Have you done so? Have you followed Christ? As we were saying to the boys and girls, have you heard the voice of the shepherd saying, come and follow me? But Elisha here, he... he, he He's called very specifically to the Lord's work, and the Lord's work is pressing. And it's so important, it cannot wait. And so Elisha goes. And friends, those of you who are here who are Christians this morning, we're called to a great work. We're commanded, aren't we, to go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. We're called to be witnesses unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And there are the multitudes outside of this building this morning who are, who are hastening to a lost eternity. And the call comes, who will go? It's a call, you see, that demands a, a swift response from us. Christ, you remember what he said? He said he must work while it is day. Because the night cometh when no man can work. And Elisha here, he realizes the urgency of the call and he realizes the urgency of the work and so he responds immediately. And friends, we are, as God's people, to work now. Don't put off doing the Lord's work at a time when you think it will be more convenient. Let me assure you, a more convenient season never comes. Don't delay this morning because you think you're unfit. The Lord will equip you. Don't hold back because you feel you are weak. The Lord will give you the strength and the grace that you need. Some of you here perhaps this morning, 
you say, well, what, what can I do for the Lord? You know, I'm, I'm too old, I'm, I'm sick, I'm infirm, I'm too young perhaps. Whatever it is, we come up with all sorts of excuses. We're great at making excuses, aren't we? Well, let me say to you, friends, this morning, whatever your position, whatever condition you're in, whatever things you may say are holding you back, let me say, let me give you one work that you can always do, and that is pray. That's a great work. Prayer is, is one of the great works that we can be engaged in, no matter whether you're on a hospital bed, whether you're at home, whether you feel infirm, whether you feel sick, we can always pray. You remember Epaphras in, in Colossians chapter 4, how uh, Paul describes Epaphras. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 12, he says this, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers. Epaphras took, him, took himself to say, well, my labor is going to be praying and I'm going to pray for the people of God and I'm going to pray and pray and pray for them, laboring fervently for you in prayers. And his prayer was that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. There's a prayer that you can pray for, for your fellow believers. Pray that we'd all be complete in the will of God. Perfect. And friends, let me say as a, as a preacher, it's a blessed thing to stand here every Sunday having heard people pray for you. So friends, let me encourage you, labour for Christ in this way. If you say, I can't do anything else, then pray. Let's labour for Christ now. Let's labour for him even in these days. Elisha obeyed immediately. He went. And may we respond to the call of Christ with such an immediacy. There's a third thing that we could notice here about Elisha's response, Elisha's conduct. And that is that it was wholehearted. Elisha's response was wholehearted. Just look again at this passage in 1, Corinthians, in 1 Kings chapter 9. And you could note a number of things that, all, that point us here to the utter commitment that Elisha had to following the Lord. In verse 20 there, he leaves the oxen and he runs. He leaves them all behind. In verse 21, he then takes the yoke of oxen and he kills them. And then he even takes the plow and he takes all the instruments and he destroys them too. I mean, such an act was such a clear demonstration to everyone around him that he was finished with the old life. Elisha the ploughboy was, was in the past. Elisha the prophet was his new identity. Now, some commentators, they take the, the words of verse 20 and they like to point out here that, uh, that Elisha wavered in his commitment, that he was indecisive, that he, he wasn't wholehearted, but he was half-hearted. And to, to bolster their claims to that, they like to go back to that passage that we read in Luke chapter 9. Now, if you, if you do have a Bible, just turn back with me to that passage that we read a moment ago in Luke chapter 9. Because some people think that this, the Lord Jesus Christ here is actually referring to Elisha. And he's pointing out that Elisha was, was half-hearted in his commitments. But you just notice what uh, we read here in verse 57 to verse 62. Um, Christ encounters three people, three followers in inverted commas. And Christ speaks to each of these followers. And if you look particularly at the, the final two encounters, it would uh, appear that Elisha is like them. In verse 59, 
Jesus says to someone, follow me. But this person says, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. In verse 61, another person comes and they say, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And uh, many people say, look, this is exactly what Elisha does here in 1 Kings 19. He says, let me go home in verse 20. Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother. And he wants to say goodbye to them. But actually, if you were to carefully scrutinize these verses in Luke chapter 9 and 1 Kings 19, you find that Elisha does the very opposite of what the people do here. Elisha wants to go home not because his heart is divided, but because he wants to sever those family ties. He's not going to to let his family hold him back from serving the Lord. That's why he asks to go home. He wants to kiss them goodbye. He wants to say goodbye to the old life. The man in Luke 9, he wants to go home because his heart is divided. Christ says, no man having put his hand to the plough and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You see, the Lord saw his heart and he realised this man's heart was divided, but Elisha's heart was not divided. In actual fact, if you read these three encounters here in Luke chapter 9, I think that the Lord was referring to Elisha because in all three of them, Elisha is an exemplary example of what to do. He doesn't delay like the first man, like the, he doesn't delay like the man who wants to go home to his father and bury his father. He's not like the first man who, who doesn't realize the poverty that will come with such a life. He's not like the third man whose heart was divided. Elisha fulfills all these things perfectly. He's, he, he is wholeheartedly committed to the cause. There's complete devotion and commitment. And friends, what an example for us in following Elisha, an example to follow in the Lord's work. Elisha pursues this calling with all his heart. He's resolute. There's complete dedication. And yet so often today we see the opposite, don't we, in the Lord's work? How often does family hold people back? How often do affections hold people back? How often does security and comforts hold people back? There's so many examples that we could give of people who've been held back from wholeheartedly serving the Lord's hindrances and obstacles just seem to strew their way, clinging to idols, clinging to their work, clinging to their hobbies, clinging to their pleasures, clinging to their children, whatever it might be. Instead of a wholehearted service for God's, God's work demands a whole heart. Friends, let me say it very clearly this morning that following Christ will bring separations. Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You see, following Christ will bring hardships and it will bring separations and we may have to cut off certain ties and we may have to leave the world behind and we may have to leave things in this world behind. Christ says, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And in that same passage in Luke 14, Christ goes on to say that he that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Friends, this morning, let me ask you, is there something holding you back in the Lord's work? Is there some idol that you're clinging to? Is there some affection that you don't want to leave behind? 
Well, may we be helped to give up everything in, our, in this world for our Saviour. May we love only him and serve only him. Verse 21 in our chapter in 1 Kings 19 says that Elisha, that he arose and he went after Elijah and ministered unto him. He leaves it all behind. The Elisha of the old is done with. The Elisha the plowboy is in the past. Now he's Elisha the prophet who follows Elijah. In a sense you could say that he says it's for me to live is Elijah. And we're to say aren't we for me to live is Christ. As disciples of Christ we wear his mantle. And so may we in like manner be ready to follow him. And to serve him with all our hearts.